Hi, I'm Dr. Mila Brujic, and we're joined with Dr. Katie Greiner, where we're going to be talking about the crossroads of keratoconic care on today's OI show. Dr. Katie Greiner, welcome. Thank you for being here. Uh, share with the audience a little bit about yourself, where you practice, where you went to optometry school, and how many years you've been in clinical practice so far. Sure. So thank you, first of all, for having me on the show. Um, I've been an optometrist since 2009. I went to the Ohio State University and I stayed in Columbus and practiced. I um, worked for a private um, ophthalmology group and I started fitting scleral lenses there. They'd never had that in their clinic before. And then I also was able to teach in the contact lens clinic at Ohio State as an attending doctor, which I loved. But then I was called back to my hometown, which is the Cuyahoga Falls area, um, Akron region of Ohio. And now I work at Northeast Ohio Eye Surgeons, where I see mostly specialty lens patients, um, keratoconus focused practice. And then I also do administrative work for the group. Katie, when did you move back to the area? I've been here. I celebrated a decade with this office just this past summer. And if you started fitting scleral lenses in 2009, you were really kind of first in class to this new era of scleral lenses as well, too, in Columbus. I think so. You know, I always like to tell my patients that the first drawings of scleral lenses date back to Leonardo da Vinci, but then I think they went into a vault for a long time until they had the resurgence. And yes, in the Columbus area, you know, I had the Greg Deneyers of the world that were teaching and mentoring me. Um, from all of the wonderful information. But yes, uh, it was pretty novel at the time, I'll tell you. So Katie, you you work in an interesting setting because um, you work hand in hand with the surgeons that are actually providing some of the surgical care for keratoconic patients. Definitely. You know, a a conversation around keratoconus would be incomplete at this point without the discussion of corneal cross-linking. Tell us where that falls in the, the algorithm of keratoconus care. It is near and dear to my heart. Um, We have three cornea specialists at the practice. And for a long time, we were referring patients, you know, up to Canada. We were sending them to Toronto to be cross-linked. And the day that it was approved, I said, we're going to get this into our clinics. And it still took us about a year to get everything moving and grooving and get the equipment in. And now we're pretty much offering cross-linking every Friday of our week to patients. And we're busy with it. But I think it's important for optometrists to know when to send. And if you don't know when to send, send right away. You know, if you don't have the fancy machines to tell what their pentacam looks like, send our way so that we could just get in an ophthalmology group, get a baseline scan on these patients. But if you are able to track them and you're watching their Ks and their their packs, progression can mean many things. Progression can mean that their best corrected acuity has dipped. You know, maybe they've been 20-20 for all this time and now they're not. So, and you can't get them to 2020, no matter what you're doing, that might be a sign that their astigmatism is increasing year over year. You're seeing that climb in a, you know, in a 20 year old male and you say that, you know, what's going on. You see scissoring on retinoscopy that wasn't there before. You know, I love my retinoscope. If I was on a desert Island and you gave me a retinoscope, I could diagnose a lot of conditions with that. And then obviously, if you're seeing more thinning as you're taking pachymetry measurements or your topography starts to become more irregular, steepening of as little as a half a diopter of astigmatism um, is showing that there's progression. So it's never wrong to send for the evaluation. It, it, it's, always, it's always thought that we should send when we see anything we're concerned about. 
mean, what level of change do you need to document before cross-linking is appropriate for those patients? So we do use um, insurance as much as we can for our patients. So we do have to justify that there's at least a 0.5 diopter of change in progression, but we also can make a case for best corrected acuity loss and astigmatism changes. So we can use all the things that I talked about, but really what guides it through a surgical practice is that we are seeing steepening um, over a six month time period on a pentacam or a topographer. And then Katie, what's the youngest patients you're treating? Because I know there's some of these individuals that are younger, more aggressive progressors. And then there's the individuals that are older patients who have frank keratoconus, but they're not progressing anymore. Um, what, what is that minimum age that you guys are typically cross-linking? So Mila, that's a discussion we've had time and again with our surgeons. Right now, their comfort level is really at the 18 and older range. So the younger ones that we're seeing, we're kind of blessed to have pediatric care in our area and we're sending more to our hospital systems. Um, that can handle those cases because you're seeing in the literature, there's cross-linking at very young ages, like 10 years old even, but our surgeon comfort level is really at 18. So share with us now. So now we understand kind of the philosophy around corneal cross-linking and we all understand the reason why we do it. We want to essentially stabilize that cornea. It's interesting. I always thought keratoconus was a corneal steepening condition when we realize it's a corneal thinning condition that manifests Mm -hmm. with corneal steepening, but there's, there's other ways that we oftentimes have to leverage best corrective visual acuity against these individuals, meaning sometimes they're already progressing. They've already lost the best corrective visual acuity. So we can't get them to 2020. And sometimes even 2020 plus higher order aberrations aren't 2020 without higher order, higher order aberrations. So how do you make the judgment call now when it's time to correct these individuals, whether or not you go with standard soft, um, hybrid, uh, small diameter or corneal GPs um, or scleral or larger lenses. How, how do you make that clinical judgment call in the lifetime of this patient? So as soon as I start seeing any signs of keratoconus, I'm probably not gearing myself as much towards the soft lens anymore. You know, a lot of them are coming in wearing toric soft lenses and saying they're just not getting that quality of vision. You know, there are aberrations that are bothering them. So they might have quantity, but not quality. I speak a lot and write a lot about the importance of just a rigid lens trial on these patients. This can be quick and dirty. You take a mean K, throw on an average shaped contact lens to their cornea. And if they tell you in the chair, wow, I can see better once you over-refract that, the quality is better. You know that a specialty type lens is probably a better option than a soft lens. I am a fan of starting very early on a scleral lens I do fit some hybrids. I will fit a corneal GP, but I really am a fan of going pretty much straight to a scleral. And I start with a real small diameter, you know, like a 15-2 diameter, 15-6 diameter lens that provides good comfort, easy for the patients to maneuver. And really, Mila, the quality of vision is, is top notch in those patients compared to a soft option. Is there a reason why you'll go to a scleral lens before you do a corneal GP or a hybrid lens? Is there a clinical logic behind that, Katie? You know, I really just think it's patient adaptation. A lot of these are young patients and the scleral provides a lot more comfort. Uh, There's a lot of, you know, comorbidities with dry eye and, and other things that can be affecting them. And so the scleral provides that, you know, wetting of the eye and that comfort as well. And so I just think today's day and age, the technology is there. I I love a good GP lens. If I have a myope that's been wearing a GP since, you know, 1980 and they love that, I'll continue to fit that. 
But if it's a new fit, I really do tend to go the scleral route. It is interesting too. You know, we've learned so much. Um, the Cluck study actually shared a lot of this with us in terms of how we should be fitting corneal GPs and not necessarily bearing on the cone and realizing that that may be an increased risk factor of progression. I think the interesting thing about scleral lenses is that we actually prevent access to the cornea from the patient. A lot of times these people are eye rubbers as well too. So again, just the prevention of access to those corneas is interesting. These people, we we have anecdotal evidence that shows like these people just progress less quickly under a scleral lens than they did under their corneal GPs. So there may be something to that, Katie, about again, that, that potential blockade that you create from, um, from the cornea with that scleral lens. Now, are you, are you using um, toric peripheral curves significantly? Is that something that you're utilizing more? Is that something that you're kind of using on an as-needed basis? I think we're finding that the sclera is way more toric than we ever thought. So to think back to when I started fitting in 2009 to what I'm fitting now, I probably am fitting 70% toric peripheral curves. And the technology just continues to soar. You know, I'll do quadrant-specific designs now you know, because we have that availability. So these things can fit like a glove. And I tell my patients, you will never have another patient that can wear this lens like you can, because I really have customized it to every part of your, of your surface. So true. I think it gives a patient perspective on that as well, too. I I love that saying, Katie, is there any reason that you go with larger lenses? I know that you know, 10, 15 years ago, we used to talk about increasing the size of the lens for some of these irregular corneas. Is there really a reason based on the contemporary designs that we need to go to those larger 17, 18, 19 millimeter designs anymore? Or are you? I, it's funny how that's changed. I fit 18 twos probably for five years. That was my only size. I, that was my go-to size. Now, like I said, my 15 to 15, six are my go-tos. I do have some patients with extremely extremely irregular and steep corneas that I need more room. I really need to vault more. And I have gone larger diameters. I have some patients with um, cornea transplants from the eighties. So they like to say my transplants just about as old as you, Dr. Greiner. And I do tend to put those patients in the larger diameters. And when I fit patients for dry eye, um, because I really want to cover as much surface area as possible, I will go with a larger diameter for those patients as well. When you say larger diameter, Katie, what is that specifically to you now? Because I know that you used to go larger, then we you went smaller. So if you're fitting a larger lens, what diameter is that typically for the dry eye? Somewhere between 17.5 and 18.2 still. I'll use those. Yeah, I think it covers a good surface area. But yeah, 15.6 is kind of my sweet spot. So Katie, we've talked a lot about corneal crosslink, kind of where that falls in the algorithm. We talked about specialty lenses as well, too. Um, share with us, if you could, your perspectives on the future of keratoconic care. I know, I know right now, we, if, if I was to have keratoconus today, if I was to end up with keratoconus myself, I know that today I would feel much better with the options because of the prevention of progression with uh, cross-linking because of the specialty lens that we have today is as best of a time as any compared to even 10 years ago to have keratoconus. What do you foresee in the next one, three, five, 10, 15 years for these keratoconic patients? And how do you see it getting better for them? I really think that cross-linking is the standard of care. Um, I don't think that we refer soon enough or even just in general enough for cross-linking. You know, right now the FDA approved way of cross-linking is to take off the epithelial tissue, very similar to what we do with a PRK surgery, but that can be a little more burdensome for a patient. 
I do see our future being epi on. There's studies going on. We're looking to that in the very near future. That'll make the surgery even more um, easy for a patient to handle and, you know, get back to their everyday lifestyle because these are patients that are typically younger, active families working. Um, I see scleral lenses becoming, you know, even more of, a, a, you know, a standard of care for this. I hope to see more fitters out there. You know, I know you're a fitter, Mila, and we like to educate others. We don't look at anyone fitting them as competition. We look at them as colleagues that we continue to train and mentor to help this vast group of patients. And I really think with the way technology is developing, we are seeing way more keratoconus than we thought we had out there in the population. So there are a ton of these patients that need our help and they need it sooner than they're getting it. So Katie, I have a few more questions here for you. Um, one is, so it sounds like you guys have been doing cross-linking for a while now. Um, what's the what's the lifetime utilization of the cross-linking? Meaning, do these individuals need to be cross-linked at some point in the future? And if they have, have you seen any of these patients? So, so far right now, we don't think so. We really think once we get it done that we've got a good lifetime for them on cross-linking. You know, even the patients we sent up to Toronto years and years ago that I've still been able to follow very closely it's really fun to present their penicams year over year and show them that they really have had minimal to no progression or significant change. And in fact, some of them, and that's not what cross-linking touts, but some of them have showed improvement. Um, I never would tell a patient that, but if it's a, a benefit afterwards that there's a little less steepening or improved acuity, I'll take that as a win. That's great, Katie. And then um, wh what is the potential disadvantage to corneal cross-linking at this point? I mean, Again, it's it's well documented in the literature. Clinically, you've seen what it does to patients, but what are reasons that people may may curb away from it? What are some of the potential downs downfalls? Yeah, I mean, with any surgery comes risks and benefits, right? So I truly think the benefits far outweigh the risks, but you really do have to monitor these patients postoperatively very closely. They could develop corneal haze, which would become one of the most detrimental complications. Um, we have to use a lot of steroid afterwards to make sure that we're monitoring that. And then if there were, you know, dense haze, they actually would have to go in and have another surgery to have that haze removed. So it is important that, you know, as an ophthalmology group here, we do co-manage with our peers. We want to send these patients back to their referring ODs. There is no global period. So the ODs can charge their E&M visit for all of those follow-ups. And they do need a significant amount. You know, we do one, one day, three days, one week, one month, three months, four months, five months. Like we want this constant um, care for them so they don't develop haze or dry eye afterwards. And then I do want to touch on, you know, then we need you to fit those scleral lenses afterwards. And we're fitting sometimes as soon as one month after. If we feel everything's calmed down, we'll actually have the patient, if they already had a scleral, we'll have them try that on. And sometimes that actually works just fine. Um, sometimes we do need to refit. Usually by three months, we're knowing if we if we want to refit. But by three months, we're getting the patient comfortably back into specialty lenses. Katie, this was awesome. Um, your clinical insights are absolutely phenomenal on this topic. I really appreciate it. And you can just tell the passion that you have for the topic. So Katie, thank, thank you for being on our on our episode today. Of course. I love keratoconus. You know, when I was a student sitting in a classroom, hearing that there were people that were my age, 25-year-olds, you know, starting a career in school that were suffering from this disease, it it spoke to me. And I said, 
if I was going through that, I'd want someone to be my advocate. And so I, I think I promised that day in that Ohio State classroom that I was going to be their advocate. Well, Katie, it's it's certain and it's true by um, the nature of your practice that you certainly are doing that. So thank you. Thank you, Mila. And thank you all for joining us on this episode of The OI Show. 